Hyperion to a satyr. Welcome to the sixth episode of Hyperion to a Seder, the Fire and Water Podcast Network's Hamlet Podcast. I'm your host, Siskoid, your guide on a scene-by-scene deep-dive look at Shakespeare's masterwork through the lens of not only the text, but many film, television, comics, and music adaptations. Today we're talking about Act 1, Scene 4, in which Hamlet and company go out looking for a ghost. Hamlet's decisive fearlessness in this scene contrasts the ambivalence he shows in the rest of the play. As if by feigning madness, he may have lost himself along the way. If he loses himself in the part, then he does not become this particular Hamlet again until the last act, after finding himself on his sea voyage. Scene 4, in which Hamlet joins Horatio and the soldiers on the platform to verify the ghost's existence for himself, is made up of two parts. First, Hamlet's Wittenbergian railing against the custom of the king's rouse, and second, his seduction by the ghost, making him leave his friends behind. For directors, there are a few choices to be made here. For one thing, how debauched is this rouse? The less extreme it is, the more Hamlet seems intolerant and or simply hateful of anything Claudius does, which actually helps the case for a mad Hamlet. The presentation of the ghost may also be an issue. While it is a seductive idea to have him be a figment of Hamlet's imagination, there can be no question that in the text, other people see it. And yet they do not hear its message in scene 5, so ambiguity may persist, and directors may well find ways to manipulate the play and sage things differently. What hour now? I think it likes to be 12. No, it is struck. Indeed. I heard it not. Then it draws near the season wherein the spirit held his world to walk. And once again, images of time being out of joint. Horatio has lost track of the time. A flourish of trumpets, an ordnance shot off, and Horatio asks, What does this mean, my lord? This is an odd question, coming from Horatio, who, up until this moment, seemed to be a fellow Dane. Why does he not know this custom? Is he from elsewhere? Hamlet seems to infer that even other countries are aware of this tradition, and that he gives Denmark a bad reputation. What would be the consequences of a non-Danish Horatio? Well, in some ways, Horatio is a stranger looking in, and he's the author of the play. One might even see his ambiguous nationality as the reason for the play's Englishisms. On a more thematic note, it places Horatio outside Denmark's corruptive influence, and in this short exchange, he doesn't seem to feel the cold as strongly as Hamlet. Denmark's hold is not as strong on him as it is on others. His lesser fear of the ghost being another example. Hamlet explains the custom of wassail, basically a drinking binge the night of the wedding, and one line of note is, so oft it chances in particular men that for some vicious mole of nature in them. The word mole, later applied to the ghost traveling in the underworld, is first used here. In both cases, Hamlet evokes the idea of a demon, which may indicate that from the first, he does not trust his father's ghost entirely. The essence of tragedy is spelled out in this speech. As in their birth, wherein they are not guilty, since nature cannot choose his origin, by their all growth of some complexion, oft breaking down the pales and forts of reason, or by some habit that too much all leavens the form of plausive manners, that these men 
carrying, I say, the stamp of one defect being nature's livery or fortune star, his virtues else, be they as pure as grace, as infinite as man may undergo, shall in the general censure take corruption from that particular fault. The dram of evil doth all the noble substance overdaub to his own scandal. The idea that a character's one defect can and will destroy him is as much a part of this play as it is any of Shakespeare's tragedies. We have Othello's jealousy, Romeo and Juliet's impatience, etc. It's entirely too simple to say Hamlet's defect is his indecision, because it is far more ambiguous than that. Various actors and directors have given that indecision different motives over the years, and these motives are the true defect. It may be mistrust, intellectualism, hubris, uncertainty, or something else entirely. This is a large part of what makes Hamlet such a rich play. Note also the leitmotif of a poisonous cup. Claudius' drunken revels poison his soul, and thus all of Denmark's. The poison poured into Hamlet Sr.'s ear, the poison cup in Act 5. Indeed, even innocent Ophelia is drowned. Liquid is deadly in this play. And finally, the ghost enters, and Hamlet's lines there make up a wonderful horror poem, the speech starting with angels and ministers of grace defend us. You'll note how Hamlet cannot yet determine if the ghost is angel or demon, something perhaps never truly resolved in his mind. Be thou a spirit of health or goblin damned. Hamlet is nevertheless beckoned away from his companions. And as a warning, Horatio cries out, What if it tempt you towards the flood, my lord? Again, the idea of drowning, and draw you into madness. Is this where Hamlet gets the idea for his feigned madness? Or is it that he is actually drawn into madness, just as Horatio foretold here? But Hamlet says, it waves me still. So even unconsciously, Hamlet remains a punster. He is waved towards the sea. So Hamlet exits, and the others hesitate before following, so they'll basically miss a crucial part of the next scene. Heaven will direct it, Horatio says, almost abandoning his friend to the ghost there. Horatio's call for heaven to direct it is contradicted by the more intuitive Marcellus. He says nay. In this scene, Shakespeare lays on another layer of ambiguity, even making us question whether the ghost is true to its word or not. One answer, of course, is that the ghost is telling the truth and spurs Hamlet to ruinous revenge against the laws of God. If Hamlet is more puritanical than the countrymen around him, then it may be that murder, even to avenge a father, is antithetical to him. It may be the reason he delays his action for so long, often questioning the ghost's morality. The text does make Claudius guilty of regicide, but also sets a high price for revenge. What is madness? But an inability to reconcile two contrary impulses, hmm? So shall we get into the meat of this scene with how it is portrayed in film? First, Branagh's. His version of the scene is without a doubt where I got my impression of disjointed time playing tricks on Horatio because Nicholas Farrell puts a strong spin on the exchange. Hamlet looks at him impatiently and he admits to not having heard the clock strike 12. Might they have missed the ghost due to his absent-mindedness? The king's rouse has started, we hear the cannons fire, and Hamlet is forced to explain the ritual. That's twice in a row Horatio doesn't seem to know what's going on. Should we infer anything from this? We discussed how he must be at least in part a stranger to Elsinore or the court, but it strikes me that there's also a dramatic device at play. In scene one, Horatio had difficulty accepting a non-rational universe, one in which a ghost could exist. 
As we near the moment of the ghost's return, we once again enter that non-rational domain, and Horatio is lost. The voice of reason has no place here. Shakespeare may be using Horatio's confusion to destabilize the audience. After all, he is something of an audience identification figure who gets things explained to him. Bryna chooses here to show us Claudius's rouse. Is the camera's point of view trustworthy? After all, Hamlet is telling us about it, and he isn't there, placing doubt on these images of Claudius knocking back glass after glass before throwing the queen on a bed in full view of his ministers, which I realize is how marriages, especially royal ones, often went at different times in history. But to modern eyes, that last bit is especially incendiary, and based on the subject matter, there's reason to believe it's part of Hamlet's imagination. Even in the play as written, without the benefit of film editing, we only get Hamlet's version of these events. He may be laying it on a bit thick because of his general dislike for Claudius. It now strikes me that while the stamp of one defect is literally about Claudius and ironically about Hamlet, it also applies to Hamlet Sr. This is a man we are about to hear speak for the first time in the play, and who has been in turn deified and humanized by his son, and who, by all accounts, was a goodly king, but also just a man. What defect did he carry, and what corruption stemmed from it? One of the questions of the play is the nature of Hamlet's relationship to his father, who seems to have been absent for most of his life, off to the wars. Is this the defect that helps form Hamlet's opinion about this, and indeed, the one that led to his ruination, absence or cold distance that allowed his wife to fall for Claudius? We continue to look for clues. Another element we can look at is Hamlet's moral outrage. He sets himself up as the defender of Danish character, while Claudius gives himself over to debauched tradition. Hamlet is presented as a politicized individual who is princely for seeing the bigger picture and recognizing that the king is the head of the state, corruption in one spreading through the other, or in this case, replace corruption by reputation. Is it this moral sensitivity that may explain why he doesn't take to murder very easily? Brenna's film makes a change from the play in this scene by placing the Angels and Ministers speech at the end, when Hamlet has left his friends behind, so really at the start of scene 5, rather than at the ghost's appearance. This creates greater urgency, making Hamlet want to follow the ghost almost immediately, and causing Horatio and Marcellus to fear for his sanity, where the text would have him cast a protective spell at the first sign of the supernatural. Now instead, Branna gives us a running prayer through the woods and a hellish montage of bubbling smoke, fiery eruptions, cracking earth, and funereal memories. It is a very literal descent into hell. The ghost does not so much crawl out of hell to meet Hamlet as bring a part of hell with him. They meet at some halfway point, but then isn't Denmark rotten enough that he has merged with hell itself? The furious pace of the prayer sends us headlong into the very precipice Horatio sought to avoid, and the images, so bizarre compared to the relatively rational reality of the rest of the play or, or film, that we wonder if we can trust Hamlet's point of view. Is this a product of his insanity? Again, the fact that others see the ghost complicates matters. I will at this point criticize Hamlet Sr.'s Santa suit, uh, which pulls me right out of the experience when I see it. In any case, placing the prayer at the end of the scene, or if you like, at the start of the next, makes Hamlet follow what should we do with where wilt thou lead me? Two questions now back to back. Hamlet is lost, and his soul is in play. In Olivier's version, visually... 
Hamlet is already teetering on the edge of the ramparts, metaphorically of sanity, as we come into scene four. He's still rather calm, and Horatio is, at best, matter-of-fact, as per their usual characterization in this film. It continues the feeling set up in scene one that the supernatural is a normal part of this world. We do see the King's Rouse, albeit from afar, down in the courtyard, so we can trust Hamlet's take on events a lot more. And in any case, the party doesn't take on the feeling of a private orgy like it does in Branagh's version. And Olivier doesn't play Hamlet's speech as a rant either, but more as a reflection. He isn't outraged, but perhaps more disappointed in his own countryman's reputation. The pauses he takes makes it all seem like it's a new idea rather than an old point of contention. Branagh's Hamlet had rehearsed the speech a hundred times in his head, which certainly fits the idea of Hamlet as a player. But Olivier's speaks and hears it for the first time, more in line with Harold Bloom's character's overhearing themselves concept. The ghost's arrival is heralded by a sense of anxiety created by a pulsing heartbeat that makes the camera go in and out of focus on Hamlet, along with Hamlet's suicidal tendencies shown at the top of the scene through the staging. This camera trick helps create a point of view for the character. Is he in fact insane? He's certainly unstable, and Horatio will be right to fear that the ghost will draw him into madness. One answer to the reality or unreality of the ghost is that it is real in this supernatural world, not a figment of Hamlet's madness, but responsible for it nonetheless. He only needs a small push, and this apparition gives Hamlet one more ball to juggle in his already confused mind. However, while the supernatural is accepted by the characters, we might still believe it to be the result of superstition. In that case, the ghost's appearance is merely a byproduct of their point of view, and the modern viewer could say it was due to a trick of the light and of the fog. And when it speaks, it is Hamlet's madness that speaks. But then the, the end of scene five might be problematic here. Certainly, this image of the ghost is indistinct enough to support this interpretation. Hamlet pulls out his sword to make a ghost that lets him, but also uses it as a cross to protect himself from evil before taking off after the ghost. The last exchange between Horatio and Marcellus is cut from this version, just as a number of words are changed. Kleptokal is a particularly annoying example. Again, it's supporting Hamlet's point of view through this scene. He wouldn't have heard them. The effect on the plot is minimal, though it does remove some well-known lines. This version of the film continues to marginalize these secondary characters in favor of Hamlet, which is a perfectly legitimate way of addressing the play's length. Fast forward to 1980, and despite being studio-bound, the BBC Jacobi version does a good job of making Denmark look like it's freezing. By keeping the actors in a single position, instead of staging it as a walk-and-talk or characters pacing, we get a better sense of them waiting for the ghost to arrive. In a more dynamic staging, the ghost seems to appear as soon as the players are all in place, or, at worst, in terms of dramatic coincidence, done with their rants about Denmark's reputation. Now here, Horatio loses track of time because he doesn't know how long they've been there. And all three men are paranoid, turning around at every little noise, hoping or fearing that the ghost has come. In that context, Hamlet's speech about his uncle's debauchery is just a way of filling up time. But the lines do take on added meaning. I'm especially interested in Hamlet's thoughts on the nature of guilt. As in their birth, wherein they are not guilty, since nature cannot choose his origin. If Hamlet does believe that a person cannot be truly guilty of his crimes because he was born to commit them, it helps explain his ambivalent relationship towards his revenge. The true fault lies with nature or fortune, or with God, not with man. 
Compare this with his apology to Laertes in Act 5, in which he blames his madness and not himself. Later in the scene, his fate cries out, again giving fortune the largest responsibility for events. There is a contradiction at play here. If no one is truly guilty, then how can he blame the king's behavior for the bad reputation laid at Danish feet? Or his mother for remarrying? How is responsibility handed out in this world? Above all, perhaps, Hamlet is a play about a man talking things through, thinking out loud, and debating himself. He forms opinions right in front of our eyes. He may well contradict himself, but by play's end, we hope to find the more complete individual. And I think we do. There is a telling moment in Jacoby's performance when they all stop for a noise, determine it's a false alarm, and he just continues on with his speech. On the surface, he appears to be keeping a brave face, but is this really his own nature-given defect? Intellectualizing, talking rather than acting, etc. In this speech about corruption of character, he is showing us his own flaw. Then the ghost arrives, an interesting gesture from Horatio here with his hands clasped in prayer, a real change from the unbeliever of scene one, chuckling at these ghost stories. But of course, one of the few cuts from this version included Horatio's allusions to pagan Rome, so he's more clearly painted as a Christian. As for Hamlet, here's an interesting line reading. I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father... Sounds like Jacoby adds a question mark. In other words, who is this ghost? If he is Hamlet, it plays on the idea of being his own madness and thus himself. If king, then he will rule over Hamlet, regardless of whether the ghost is Hamlet Sr. returned or, or goblin damned. If father, then as true ghost. Jacoby does well to play on this ambiguity, also giving fodder for those who would call into question Hamlet's true genetic origins. Because yeah, the truly tragic ending has Hamlet kill his own true father at the end. But again, tread carefully when you mention Oedipus to me. The King's Rouse is played rather differently in Zeffirelli's heavily cut adaptation, uh, in that it acts as the wedding banquet. Claudius even lets out the canon to the heavens line in this section. As such... It makes it all the harder to understand what Hamlet's problem is with this tradition. One even has to wonder why one of the guards, surely a local, is given Horatio's line asking about the custom. It looks like any banquet, and even Ophelia attends. Zeffirelli, ever-efficient, uses the scene to give several characters meaningful glances at each other. The royal couple is happy, Polonius makes ingratiating smiles at them, and Ophelia timidly responds to Gertrude's toast. While we shouldn't be surprised at Hamlet's refusal to attend he's against the marriage itself, it is odd that these simple revels would turn the Danish nation into a laughingstock. Most of the lines from this section are cut, but he notably ends the speech as an aside or a soliloquy. So oft it chances in particular men that for some vicious mole of nature in them their virtues else be they as pure as grace shall in the general censure take corruption from that particular fault. All his companions ever hear is the idea that Danes are klept drunkards based on the custom. Everything else, cut down to its essentials, of course, is said in a private moment as Hamlet watches the party from a grate. Where other Hamlets perhaps give sermons? This one has a personal realization about the nature of a man's flaws. Horatio continues to be sidelined in this version, doesn't let him into his innermost thoughts. And finally, the ghost appears, 
First as a face in the dark, then from afar, the viewer may not at first even spot him. Though there is no doubt Horatio and the guards see something, the murky lighting and Hamlet's constant shifting between manic elation and fear support the idea of an imaginary ghost, one that lives only in Hamlet's mind. In this version, we have no proof that Horatio and the others ever saw it. No scene shows it, even if they tell Hamlet about it. Of course, this thought is not really pursued by the director. Horatio remains in the background, and the ghost's reality is never questioned. Another change is that the ghost is not wearing armor, and all descriptions of such have been cut. This Hamlet Sr. is not a warrior, and there are no Polak Wars mentioned as a context. He seems old and dressed as a monk. Instead of an absent but glorified father, we have instead a man who might not have been able to properly service his too young wife, and whose piety and morals are espoused by his son. It changes the whole dynamic of the Hamlet family. As written, Hamlet cannot really know how good his father was, making the ghost's ambiguity Hamlet's seniors as well. Hamlet becomes a scholar and doesn't follow in his father's footsteps. There is a rebellion there that is continued in the mistrust he shows the ghost and that may have generated guilt, which informs his grief. Claudius would have swooped in while his brother was away. Now, here, there is no real sense that Senior was absent from his son's life. The gravedigger's mention of the wars has no real lasting resonance later. Only apparent absence from his wife's bed, whether because of age or morality. Hamlet is using his father as more of a moral compass, explaining his own prudish ideas, but also making the ghost more sympathetic, as we'll see in the next scene. A victim, to be pitied. It also means Claudius and Gertrude are more brazen in their affair, if this is the case. The scene ends with Hamlet breathlessly following the ghost through the bowels of the castle, his sword always in front of him as the others lose sight of both. Act 4 is pretty much excised from Hamlet 2000, using instead wordless sequences to tell the story. The first sequence has Claudius and Gertrude getting frisky in their limo while Hamlet watches them from the facing seat. This along with the red carpet press walk that follows, is equivalent to the King's Rouse, perhaps. There's clearly a party atmosphere in which Hamlet does not share, and if there's a tradition here, it's that of enjoying the public eye. Hamlet, when confronted with journalists, says nothing. He is completely disconnected from the way things are done. His parents, in this instance, prove to be extremely selfish beings, which is in tune with the modern view this film takes of the play's characters. There's a strong Gen X versus Baby Boomer vibe here, where the Gen Xer, Hamlet, won't buy into the system promoted by his more materialistic Boomer parents. Obviously, this has nothing to do with Shakespeare's intent, but it's an interesting filter to read the playthrough if one accepts it as universal. Different impulses may have driven this generation gap in Shakespeare's day, but I'm sure there was a gap. Applying a modern-day motivation to that gap is one way of updating the play for each successive audience. In any case, cutting all the dialogue referring to the rouse and its effect on the Danish reputation was probably necessary since it doesn't quite make sense in the world of New York's Elsinore. Horatio and the soldiers aren't waiting with Hamlet in this version. Instead, he's crashed in his apartment and they wake him at the appointed hour from the platform, or in this case, security station. Since there is no need to explain the rouse to them, they would have little to talk about anyway. The biggest change is that they're not present to try and stop Hamlet from following his father's ghost. Sure, this avoids mention of cliffs and other terrain not present in New York, but it also makes the entire group far less afraid of the ghost. Once they've accepted his existence, they don't really fear it. 
These are characters who might have grown up on horror movies, maybe. They might have been willing to be with Hamlet at the appropriate moment, but he is more remote than most other Hamlets. He has cut himself off from them in advance, so when the ghost shows up, they haven't yet reached the apartment. Hamlet sees the ghost on his balcony from his own window and lets out the first few lines of the Angels and Ministers of Grace prayer. Angels and Ministers of Grace defend us. Be thou the spirit of health or goblin damned. Bring with the airs of heaven or blast from hell. There's a neat match between the word hell and a fiery explosion on the television. These fires continue to loop through the next scene. They're part of Hamlet's stock footage collection, creating a hellish space in between moments for scene 5 to take place in. Now, there's not much left of scene 4 in Fodor's Hamlet either. As the trio waits for the witching hour, there's no cause to speak of any kind of King's Rouse. This is a particularly decadent Elsinore, and it is doubtful this Hamlet would retain his puritanical values. The three characters do not, in fact, go much beyond discussing the weather and what time it is. Horatio and Marcellus remain intriguing in their very modern aloofness, but their parts are soon over. Instead of the usual appearance of the ghost, fearful prayers, and Hamlet's headlong jump into the dark, the film goes for a more supernatural sequence. Time stands still, Hamlet notices his friends are frozen in the moment. He then has a vision of himself as a young boy, prancing through Elsinore House in the harsh white sunlight that this film associates with the ghost world. Then he's there too. Flash cuts move him from room to room, have him confront his younger self until he's alone. And then he gets hit across the face by an invisible hand a few times before the ghost physically appears. This is a much more malevolent ghost than the ones we're used to, which may put even more doubt on his tale later. If the ghost is evil, did he perhaps deserve the death he got, even if he's telling the truth? Could Fodor's Hamlet delay his action for more nihilistic reasons? Does it matter if his father is avenged? Is he worth avenging only in that Claudius is just as deserving of death? Does Hamlet care either way? And by corrupting Denmark so entirely, Fodor levels the playing field between good and evil. There is, in effect, no good. If all deaths are deserved, is this still a tragedy? And yet, there are those shots of Hamlet as a child, speaking to a happy childhood. Are we then to understand that Hamlet Sr.'s time in hell is the reason behind his present corruption? Scene 5 will have him say, I am thy father's spirit, not thy father. What is the distinction? How far removed from a man's life is his traumatized soul? We'll try to answer these questions when we look more closely at scene 5 itself and actually hear the ghost speak. In the tenant version, scene 4 begins with only Marcellus and Horatio in view and Hamlet popping out from behind them. The theme of this scene is surprises. And you could say every character enters from out of nowhere, especially if they're a member of the Hamlet family. The king's cannon shots, for example, actually make you jump. Not to say Claudius physically appears, but he's noisy enough to be heard in a scene in which he doesn't feature. That actually says something about the disrupting nature of the character, at least to the more quiet and contemplative Hamlet, whose actual father is, in this scene, completely silent. The staging adds fireworks to the, this cannon shot in keeping with its modernization, and Horatio seems to enjoy them in spite of Hamlet's disapproval. Hamlet's speech about Danish reputation is cut, Horatio is not chided for enjoying the light show. In any case, this is all Shakespeare's cover for the entrance of the ghost, a distraction until the next scare. The ghost comes from behind the camera, so out of the fourth wall, if you will, and very early separates Hamlet from his friends. This allows Hamlet's speech to be much more intimate, as he's cornered by the corpse of his father. 
usually shouting at the ghost from a distance, the staging here instead creates entirely new opportunities. Hamlet actually takes on a somewhat childish voice, returned to childhood by his father's appearance. Father, Royal Dane, oh, answer me. Perhaps we can see something of their relationship in this, as it is legitimate to see Hamlet Sr., as written, as a rather sinister parent. The ghost walks right out of hell and into cold Denmark, represented by his steaming cloak. It's a great effect. It was apparently created in the stage version as well, with Patrick Stewart being fitted with a smoke machine. The ghost eventually points in a direction and walks towards it, with Hamlet following. The stage version scored each of the ghost's gestures with a tolling bell, very ominous. Uh, but this is not used in the film's sound design. When his friends try to stop him, he manages to draw Marcellus's dress sword out of its scabbard and threatens them with it, a clever way to follow the stage direction despite the modern dress. David Tennant also makes more of a meal out of his threatening gestures, almost stabbing Horatio, who falls to the ground to avoid the blow. It better motivates Horatio's fear in the last part of the scene. He's not just afraid of the ghost, which he's faced twice now, after all, but of Hamlet himself. His final heaven will direct it, here becomes a question. He's perhaps hoping that Marcellus will let things go, but knows he'll probably follow. This makes Horatio less eager to leave his friend to his fate than the strict text would have it. As for Classics Illustrated, the original series for boys continues to put heavy emphasis on the ghost as a supernatural element, opening the scene with a splash page. And of course, it's been distilled to a single speech, cutting almost all interactions with Horatio and Marcellus, including the notion of the King's Rouse, which is not particularly age-appropriate for the original Classics Illustrated. When Hamlet decides to follow the ghost, he does not draw his sword or threaten his allies in any way. The ghost's gesture is it's actually slightly disturbing. I swear it looks like he's giving them the finger. But as usual, Classics Illustrated reduces the play to its plot points and most famous speeches. And yet, no rotten in the state of Denmark. In the Berkeley version, Tom Mandrake likewise doesn't take up page real estate with the King's Rouse. But as his strength is in setting a mood, he does start the scene where it should. The three friends are sitting around a fire in the cold and misty wastes of his Denmark, and Hamlet looks bored. An interesting idea. Has he given up hope that the ghost is real? It would help sell the surprise of the ghost's appearance, except that in comics, all panels exist simultaneously on the page, and readers would have seen it coming. Though Horatio's warnings are cut from the book, Mandrake gives us a visual sense of the danger. The ghost walks through the stream, which resonates with uh, Ophelia's death, forcing Hamlet to take the bridge, and they are soon climbing a precarious exterior staircase. The cliff, the flood, their essence is here even if they're not mentioned. As with the classic version, Mandrake's Hamlet doesn't draw his sword in this scene. It strikes me that this makes all the characters dramatically weaker. Either ineffectual and unable to impact the story, in the case of Horatio and Marcellus, or toothless and far less dangerous in the case of Hamlet. This is a legitimate interpretation, if rather boring. The characters are ineffectual. Beyond Hamlet's delay of his revenge... Horatio and Marcellus cannot resolve the ghost dilemma by themselves, cannot prevent Hamlet from following it, despite being two men, one of which is an armed soldier, and in Marcellus' case, dropping out of the play once he swears an oath to say nothing, because a character without lines isn't really in the play. Horatio may be the play's great survivor, but one of his last moments is a failed suicide. Not to say this is all contained in these few panels, but looking ahead to the rest of the play, these choices make some sense. 
The scene is not included in A Bleak Midwinter, nor in Slings and Arrows, so let's jump to your favorite, Johnny Halliday's French rock opera. His rock anthem for this scene leaves the ghost for later and concentrates on the king's rouse, turning it into a full-blown orgy. That's the title, The Orgy. Halliday creates strong, almost surreal images that may well be in Hamlet's mind. Lanterns cast a red light that makes the scene hellish in its carnality, at once about lust and gluttony. He also brings back the irony of the funereal wedding, with black veils coming off in a most lascivious way. Animal imagery is equally dominant, in line with Hamlet's later calling Claudius a beast. Halliday slash Hamlet sings all the words except... The handsome, the good, the great king, which the chorus sings. They may be the participants of the orgy in this case, though this line is entirely ironic. Hamlet himself cannot bring himself to say it. The rouse is much more extreme than in stage productions, but with only songs to recreate the feeling of the play, it is fitting that Halliday has gone for the operatic. And that ends our look at Act 1, Scene 4. Next time, the ghost tells its story. So if you have thoughts on this particular episode, please head over to fireandwaterpodcast.com and put keyboard to digital paper. And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you, dear listener, will return for Act 1, Scene 5, Part 1, The Ghost's Story. <laughs> <laughs>